Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Stephen Titmus, and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Andy Butler. He's best known as Hercules and Love Affair, who scored a huge album on DFA in the 2000s and has gone on to become one of the top songwriters in dance music. However, his story goes well beyond the disco and house-orientated music he's known for. He and I caught up in London recently to get deep into his musical journey. You can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with Andy Butler is up next. play has a pretty obvious 80s disco and house influence i wondered was that the music you started listening to as a youngster growing up well one of the earliest memories i have of enjoying the radio pop radio was listening to a retro show and so it was probably 1989 or 1990 and i heard yazoo situation on the radio but at that point, it's 12 years after the release of that record, or maybe maybe that's exaggerating a bit, 10 or 11 years. And um, it was already considered retro, but it was super new to me. And like Vince Clark, like his way with synth melodies grabbed me in a major way. And Alice in Moye's voice. So I was just kind of blown away and like a slightly, it was the first obsession I had, I remember. I need to find out who that artist is. And then I did. And then at like 12, I had Upstairs at Eric's as a cassette. And that's really where it started. So I guess in a sense, yes. So were you more a Yazoo fan or a fan of that music in general? Did that lead on to you discovering more? Well, no, then I became just interested in New Wave. You know, because the sound of like the future is what I heard. Even though at that point, God, it is 1990 at 12 years old. I wasn't aware of any sort of notion. I, the idea of house music or techno hadn't entered into my consciousness. It was shortly thereafter that it did because as a 12-year-old, I I got, as most kids my age in America did, or a lot of kids, I watched MTV and I saw Club MTV and I saw Technotronic pump up the jam. And uh, I remember being like, what is this like repetitive nonstop music with this simple kind of lyrical rap thing over the top of it and then went to the bus stop the next day singing it and all the other kids were singing it pretty much i remember yeah so for me before my teenage years where i got really obsessed with house music 
and techno and trance or whatever. It was about new wave and and then after that it became it was a bit it was directly into industrial. So I was like wanting to get into edgier things at 13, 14. I think the anger kind of lit in me. And I started becoming interested in industrial music. So there was like a good two years of, you know, wearing skinny puppy t-shirts and listening to, you know, frontline assembly and goth and buying like, you know, just wearing makeup, black, and my parents starting to notice for the first time that um, that it, I wasn't just different. I was um, maybe a little angry and different. So then I found the warehouse, if you will. And then I got interested in like, yeah. I read that you started going to nightclubs from a pretty early age. Was that the kind of a turning point for you? When, when, when did you first go to a nightclub? For, well, nightclub, it was a warehouse party. The first, I was probably 15, you know, the first rave I went to. And I saw Ron Decor, an LA hardcore DJ playing. And I bought LSD off the street and had an insane, absolutely insane experience, which was completely life-changing, you know? So, um, yeah, that was like the total game changer that, that night. Did you bin your skinny puppy t-shirts after that? No way, no way. <laughs> because I, I still, I maintained an interest and love for all of that music throughout all of the years. So even when I started collecting house records at 16, 15 years old, and I had my first, you know, proper DJ set out, I played Yaz's Situation in the middle of a house set, you know? So I was still, I mean, I did it because I just, I saw the relationship, I heard the relationship, the link between this, these sorts of music. I think that as a kid, I was just a little bit balls out with it too. So I was like, I don't care what other people think about it, you know? And then shortly thereafter, I encountered DJs that were doing that very thing. And it was about dropping historical moments and like showing lineage in the set. So I didn't bend the, the skinny puppy t-shirts, but I did stop wanting to dye my hair black and wear the lipstick and stuff. So that's really interesting though, that you were open to this historical context of DJing from a really, you know, almost at the start, which is obviously still something that's very strong with you today. Do you remember your first DJ set at all? I do. It's so funny because there's this Wikipedia entry, which is like cringeworthy. And, you know, I hate these user run sites. I just needed to say that. <laughs> no, Wikipedia has this funny story about me DJing in um, a leather bar with a drag queen hostess called Chocolate Thunder Pussy. Fantastic name. And it's true. That was my first DJ gig. I DJed at 15 years old with um, some local people and a Chicago DJ called Matt Semi. And I had to be rushed, taken to the toilets at one point because the police showed up at the bar. And I don't know what the complaint was, but I had to hide in the bathroom with Chocolate Thunder Pussy. Scared shitless that my life was going to end because my parents were going to find out I was in a gay bar, a leather bar, you know, doing what I was doing. But that was my first DJ gig. It was nerve wracking. It was totally terrifying. And fortunately, there was not that much attention being paid to the DJ. It wasn't like a proper gig gig. You know what I mean? 
The second one I had was a lot more nerve wracking and it was in a after hours living room space and Sunshine from Dub Tribe played. And I was like 17 and they offered for me to play like an hour or something and I was scared shitless. I remember dancing to his DJ set a lot and enjoying what he did. Did it go well though? You know, my memory is, I think it went okay, you know? Performance has always been a, um, a challenging thing for me. Like from the time I was playing the piano as a, a kid, you know, like recitals were nightmarish. Like anything where I had to like, people had to look at me. And that probably comes from a very weird family background where like usually attention was not good. So like in general, if the like uh, eyes were on me I, and I still like this, I really have to work against this notion that like, um, the eyes in the audience are all critical. It's a weird thing. So I remember being nervous. It probably went pretty good, you know? And you mentioned piano. Um, that's something you were doing since a pretty young age. Do you remember when you started playing piano? It's something you you know you do today and you've excelled at very <clears throat> yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, f- discovering the piano for the first time. I remember sitting in the in front of a keyboard and like, looking at the notes and looking at the distances between these notes and my fingers and figuring out playing them and he- just getting really excited by the difference in pitch and listening to the relationship of the one pitch to another pitch. And um, that curiosity, I'm really grateful to say, still exists with me today. Like I'm still, I, I'm, not an ad- I'm not terribly adept as a, a pianist, but... Um, it is my instrument when it comes to composition. Like, it's the way I do it. You grew up in Colorado, right? Yeah, teenage years. Yeah. I was just wondering that, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, you was wearing skinny puppy t-shirts, dyeing your hair black, you know, hanging out at game leather bars, you know, that kind of alternative culture. Was that a part of Denver culture, like a strong part of it? Yeah, super yeah. big part. Yeah. There's a Wax Tracks Records in Denver. And um, the relationship got, I, I'm going to sound a little... John Grant, who was on my last record, who appeared as a guest, is a little bit older than me. And it's fun being in Denver at the same time. He's from Denver. And we talk about subculture that existed at the time in the like late 80s and 90s. And um, he's told me the story, but and I might mess it up right now, but Wax Tracks has a location in Denver, is definitely related to the label. I think the actual store started in Denver. I think they were originally from Denver and then went to Chicago. So, you know, there was definitely a big mid-80s alternative scene, if you will. I, I used the term alternative because it was a lot of different stuff. But um, if industrial bands from Chicago were playing in magnet cities in the Midwest, Denver would definitely be one that they would hit. And then... The same thing happened with warehouse parties, you know, rave culture was big there. Interesting. And you eventually moved to New York. Um, That was the study, was it? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a pretty prestigious place you studied at. (laughs) Could you you talk us through that a little bit? Well, I mean, I was, um, I sort of entered with a relatively... um, noticeable drug addiction already probably at that point um so i barely got into this prestigious place but yeah it was a a college called sarah lawrence college and um i mean i had heard about it first in high school because 
I went to, to, no, it was even junior high school. In seventh or eighth grade, I heard about this college on the East Coast where only weird boys, like gay boys go and girls. And it's really artsy and stuff. Because someone in my class, her, her older sister went there and said it was really weird. And it always stuck in my head. But I didn't know that six years later, I would be applying and going to that really weird school. What that means was, it wasn't, it's not a traditional school in the sense that like, you know, you didn't have to declare a like a major. That was one thing that was really cool. There was a flexibility in your studies and it allowed me to do, to study things as diverse as like art history and really get deep into comp aspects of art history, which totally inform what I do now, and electronic music in an all analog studio. And then also I was studying modern dance quite intensely at the time too, dancing six hours a day, five, six hours a day. So I got to do like a lot of different things that all really, I can say it shaped who I am and really I apply a lot of what I learned. But at the time my father was like, what the hell school are you going to? All I know is it's expensive and I don't trust that you're learning shit there, you know? Yeah, you know, the way you describe it sounds fantastic, but you know, I don't know what job apart from what you no, do. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't know. I might be a special case because I really do use, I mean, everything I studied there practically. If you look at the list of things I studied, feminism, you know, anthropology, art history, all of these things on some level really inform what I do. But it's not the kind of place where if you want to be a, a doctor or have a clear career path, you don't necessarily go to that place, you know. And um, did the location change, take a time to adjust, or did you fall right into like the New York life pretty quickly? Well, so the thing is, it was 45 minutes outside of New York City, yeah, which was a really good thing. And no, no, because there is a difference in America between the coasts, you know, like in terms of the vibe or the attitude of the people, you know. For me, coming from the West Coast, essentially, I found the people there really hard to get to know. They weren't really nice. In Denver, you know, you can be on a city block, you know, two people on a city block, 50 meters away from each other, and you wave at each other. You know, in New York City, you are bumping into each other and you don't acknowledge each other's existence. So it was a really different thing. But after about a year, I realized it was like um, something clicked. I met some nice people and then it just started happening. So I started going into the city quite early. As I said, I was already buying music, so I was frequenting the vinyl stores and going out to interesting nights and going to bars that played good music and stuff. Do any particular club nights stick out in your mind as being particularly good or influential on what you do now? Yeah, I mean, I would say the, the you know, I've said it before, but the body and soul parties at vinyl always were big for me because there was an eclecticism to what was played. There were really moments where you might hear something like, like Isolé from on Playhouse would be dropped. And then like an hour and a half later, you'd hear the word is love by Sil Curley. And then you would hear like some Afro jazz stuff. And like, it was just a very refreshing way to spend your Sunday afternoon from a musical perspective. And it was really fun to dance the culture, the different people in the room was also pretty astounding because it was just like 
so mixed up. You know, you had like Japanese tourists who were totally like there for that experience. You had like professional dancers from the Alvin Ailey Dance Company. Like uh, you had like Latino kids. You had all kinds of people, a big gay quotient. So it was a really fun energy in the room. That would definitely be a big one. And then I loved some nights, you know, some like some bars that just that DJ friends of mine would play. I, I would just I liked to go and listen to music and dance in a corner. You know, those were some of the more because really that moment, 1996, when I very first moved to New York was the moment that the nightclub was in serious what threat. The Giuliani era. Yeah. You know, like there was the shutdown of this, the shutdown of that, the shutdown of this, the shutdown of that. So like the only really active mega club at the time was Twilo. I definitely had a couple nights out at Twilo. I remember hearing Honey Dijon for the first night upstairs at Twilo and hearing her play a track on the Basement Boys label that just blew my mind. I'm forgetting the name of it, but... It was one of these records that I was like, after hearing her play it, I needed to go find it. It was one of those. And it was a a fun thing to see because she later on, a couple years later, we had mutual friends and then we became friends. And yeah, New York is interesting in that in that way. You're never that far away from people in a way. One thing I read that I found fascinating, actually, is that, you know, the clubs were important as well, but you actually got a pretty serious music education through tapes in a record, uh, or was it a clothes store? Yeah, super, super big moment. I mean, the Inflagranti guys, Alex Glor, and a a, a fella from England called Chris Brick. Chris ran a secondhand, a dead stock clothing store, not a secondhand store. It was a, an amazing dead stock, two-story shop that was just overflowing with bizarre items of clothing from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that were untouched, still had tags on them. And I had an art history class in the city, down the street. And so every day at our break, we would walk by this weird store. I'd, I went there initially because there was these two little terrier dogs that I loved, and I would go visit the dogs. And then I heard the music coming out of there once, and it was like, it was like telex being played, pitched really slow. And I thought, oh, this store is weird, you know? This music is bizarre. And like, I went in, I was like, super cool, you know? And engaged the counter guy at the counter, asked about the music, and decided to buy one of the tapes. And um, it was called Smile in Nylon. And there were 30, some of 35 of them maybe made. So Chris Brick ran the clothing shop. Alex Glor is a Swiss guy who has had been living in New York f- since 1985. And he, for the past uh, maybe 15 years, has been working with Sasha from Kodak Records. They made these crazy tapes that were directly taking cues from the cosmic disco scene. I didn't know anything about the cosmic disco scene. I knew... Perhaps something of, a, I had a secondhand education about Balearic music from the Tonka sound system guys that were coming through Denver on a regular basis. And, you know, I'd go to after parties and hear like someone like DJ Garth play for four hours and he would play all really old weird records. And 
I didn't really know what the what to call it. I just knew that it was really fun and his like a, a history lesson in a way. So I encountered this stuff and it evoked the same thing in a way. You know, I was really like, this is this is just out there. But I took a tape home, I turned it on, and within ten minutes I turned it off. I was like, this is garbage. And I went downstairs to my friend's dorm room and I was like, you know that tape I bought? It's so weird. I can't, I don't get it. It's like so weird. And then like a week later, I was like, I'm going to try it again. So you put it on. And I think I made 35 minutes into it. And I was like, it's weird, but it's really interesting, actually. I have to admit. And then the third listen, I was like, this is fucking brilliant. You know, like, what is with these people playing Mary and Faithful so slow that she sounds like it's she's Ozzy Osbourne? You know, why am I... I'm gaining a new, I didn't realize it, but I gained a real, a really different perspective on music from those tapes. So I collected them and um, they definitely shaped the way I would be DJing and the music I would be collecting and the music I would make from then on. And I didn't get to meet Alex until 10 years later in Switzerland. Since then, he's become something of a mentor to me. He's like, he's really like an artist very godfather when did you start writing your own music i started writing my own music i mean i have to just say it because uh i started writing piano music as a kid you know so some of those songs that i wrote as a child have even transformed into things that ended up on albums so i really did start sort of exploring the world of songwriting as a child but then properly started making dance music that was a kind of intended to be listened to in a club or something sort of like that. Maybe in my early 20s, I started making demos. And was that always you performing them or was it with other people? No, I was always asking the people around me. I was like looking at the people around me and being like, okay, well, I had a modern dancer friend and I had some other friends who were studying like woodcuts, woodcutting and this and that. I would say... I'm booking time in the studio when I was still in university. I'm booking one o'clock in the the morning on Thursday night. Let's drink a little and do some stuff and go into the studio and see what comes out of it. And these non-singers, non-musicians would come into the studio with me and we would make something. So I kind of carried that on uh, when I graduated and um, continued to just look at the people around me and say, sing on this. And they said, I'm not a singer. And I said, you are today. You know, and uh, making, yeah, making dance tracks with different kinds of people. Not always dance tracks. I mean, just, yeah, music. And was there kind of a end game for those sessions? Was it like, I want to make a record? Or was it just, let's go into the studio and have some fun? No, it was just what I was doing as a kid. It was the same thing I was doing as a kid, which was just writing music for the sake of writing music. I, yeah, I didn't have any intentions, which was... Which is kind of cool, you know? I mean, I think it's interesting, though, when you see kids that are, like, 16 years old, 17 years old with careers, you know? And I was just, like, having fun making music until I was, like, 25 or 26, at which point my I had a friend who really was becoming a highly acclaimed professional musician looked at me and said, what are you doing? Like do you want to do this for your life or not? Like, are you going to continue making these student projects or do you want to, you know, do something? And at that point I was like, I guess I should try to do something if I can. It almost sounds like a lack of ambition. 
when I talk about it. But I also think that some really nice music can come out of that sort of just making it for the sake of making it. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, perhaps your career wouldn't have ended up the way it was if you hadn't had those years of experimentation and, you know, just fun, I suppose. For sure. Yeah. So when did Hercules and Love Affair as a project start to come together? So I had written like five songs, six songs, and um, Anthony specifically had gone into the studio with me over the course of like three years while I was in this process of like, I'm making a song, do you want to come into the studio? <laughs> After we had made like a handful of demos, Anthony looked at me and said, I don't really do these student projects anymore. So do you want to do something with this? And I said to Anthony, I don't really know people in the music industry from a like a label perspective or whatever. And Anthony said, well, you have other songs. You've been working with that girl came in, you know me already, and why don't you make a little compilation and, and try to get it to a label? So I did, I collected these songs, specifically the one that was most finished was Blind. And I gave that to, I sent it to Daniel Wang because Danny Wang I had re reached out to when I was like 24. I just wrote a handwritten letter to the address on the Ballyhoo record label sleeve and I said I'm a huge fan of yours like you've inspired me for a long time and I made a mix for you and lo and behold a handwritten letter came back to me dissecting my DJ mix saying how great it was and um, we became friends so I knew that at least he should hear this thing I did with Anthony so Anthony um said you should send this to DFA. DFA is the label in New York at the moment that would most make sense and they're kind of having something happen with them right now. So uh, in 2007 I sent the demo of Blind to James Murphy via Daniel Wang and Daniel Wang or and James Murphy was like really interested. And then some meetings happened and then it was like so what are you going to Anthony said, before you go into that meeting, you tell them you want an album. So I did. I went in and I said, I want an album. And they were like, well, let's hear the other songs. I played them. They're like, okay, have an album. We'll, we'll try to get you an album deal. At that point, I had to come up with a name. So I just started looking at, yeah, historically who I was. And the name came. And then I had to figure out, like, well, who is in this, you know? I had a couple of songs with Anthony. I knew I had a couple songs with Kim Ann. I knew I had a couple songs with Nomi. I figured that's a that's a team. Let's make that the project. Uh, to be honest with you, actually, before all of it, Anthony and I, we had like six songs recorded and initially we were gonna just do a project together. Anthony and I. Anthony was like, this isn't a maybe the right thing for me. I think you should really make the focus about you and your songs. And that's what I did. So it kind of came together then. Yeah, it seems like quite a whirlwind from going to these student projects to being on DFA, arguably one of the hottest labels of, of the time. Totally. And I, and I had one DFA record in my bag, you know? Yeah. Which was weird too. But um, yeah, it was a complete whirlwind. 
was it overall a, a good experience being on DFA? Yes, it was a, a tremendous experience going into the studio, fully producing my record with Tim Goldsworthy, getting to know Eric Brusek. I mean, there was a moment when we were in the studio and Tim Goldsworthy looked at me and said, so what are you going to do for your live show? And I looked at him and I said, live show? And he said, yeah, your live show, you know, you're going to go tour this music. I said, I am? And he said, yeah, what are you going to do? I said, I don't, I mean, I haven't even thought about that. And then he's like, maybe some of these other musicians who have come in and played on the record would want to do it. So I, I met a handful of wonderful musicians who participated. Uh, Andrew Raposo played bass, Morgan Wiley played keys, Carter and Corey were playing the horns. I had all these like jazz musicians essentially. And I asked them and they were all hands in the air. Yeah, we'll do it. We want to do it. So I met a bunch of wonderful musicians. I met, I had a, a, an experience that I really had never had before, which was hey, realize your songs in a million dollar studio with a bunch of analog gear that James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy have been collecting for the past 10 years. And I guess it's probably important to state that, you know, the original demo of Blind sounded fairly different from the, you know, the high res version that you made with those guys, you know, I guess elevating well, it. Well, this is the weird thing, actually. I mean, I had been recording live instruments when I went into to DFA. There was already a bass tract. There was already, and the horn remains the same on the record. Certain elements remain the same. The drums remain the same from when I recorded them. But yeah, it's definitely fair to say that, you know, I experienced a whole nother level of production once I went into those studios. I mean, if you saw what I was making my music on, it was ridiculous. I had like a, an SH-101, a Roland JV-1080 rack mount synth, which is a super cheap, crappy synth, a digital workstation. And I was like really roughly editing samples to get live sounds until I could have collect enough money to record a live instrument. So all of a sudden, a million dollar studio, a bunch of musicians, a super experienced co-producer, an engineer that was like Eric Brusek, who was amazing. It was a definitely an amazing experience yeah and then one track you know we've talked about blind a fair bit but it's i think it'd be a shame not to talk about the remix which is you know for my money one of the best remixes of all times the frankie knuckles <coughs> mix. but when i interviewed frankie a number of years ago he said he was super surprised at the time that someone was even asking him to do a death mix sounding mm. remix he couldn't believe it and i think he turned it down at first did he how did you originally bring him around to to take the remix well, so Maria May, who is my agent, has been the agent for Hercules since the beginning. She at one point said, you know, shall I reach out to Frankie for a remix? And I said, yeah, that would be amazing. But in the back of my head, I was like, oh, whatever. That's totally not going to happen. Because she said, you know, I've known Frankie forever. She's his agent. I'm one of the crew. But I just, I don't know. It just didn't seem like it could be really, I couldn't fathom it would be a reality. And she came back with, Frankie's health isn't great, you know? And he said no. And I said, oh, that sucks. You know, I can't believe he even considered it, though. I was like, I, I would really, really, really die if we had one. And she said, can you wait a little bit? And I said, yeah, of course. You can tell him, we'll wait if that's a thing. And he, she went back and said, if, you can recover and get healthy again and then do it. Frankie said, really? Okay, cool. Then I'll do it. 
so yeah, it was like absolutely it, it really as I said, it just was something I didn't believe at first. And then, you know, it was just about adjusting schedules. That was really all it was, you know. The idea that such a legend and like someone it was beyond an honor. I was really like as I said, it was really in a way when I recount it, a lot of it was just a whirlwind, you know. So Absolutely. And you mentioned, obviously, the live shows, which you, you know, graduated to very quickly. How did that experience come together? Because I imagine that must have been, you know, quite a stressful experience, like moving from the studio to the live scenario. You know, it takes bands decades, usually dance bands decades to get to that stage. Well, I mean, I had to do it. You know, I definitely would have loved to have a year to rehearse. You know, I'll tell you that. But, um, well, there was something really punk about it at the beginning. You know, like we were, I I honestly had to give something of a pep talk before every show, not even believing it, trusting in the musicianship of a handful of the people on stage. And I would say, you know, you guys, no matter what, even if everything just doesn't work, like even if the power goes out, even just have fun, you know? And this still to this day is like the speech I give before every show, essentially. Uh, it's just like put a smile on and like, you know, act crazy and don't give a fuck. There's a very punk attitude. That said, there were a ton of flat notes. There was a lot of hiccups. There was a lot of ugliness in terms of like the sheen that one might aspire to you know especially when it's like you're playing really melodic dance music you know if you're playing a sort of rugged loop oriented music you don't have to fuss so much you know i mean it's arguable but we just did it and before you know it we've done 30 shows and we sound a lot better before you know it, we've done 60 shows and we've do, we sound a lot better so but taking eight musicians on the, on the road I started to make money from my live shows this year. After five, six years? After almost eight years. After eight years. Wow. So I actively lost money for the first 70-some shows, which was a very, at some point, you know, it's amazing. I, I sort of have a delayed reaction, I think, to things. Like, I have no business sense, really. I've I've gained a little bit, but... You know, after years, I sort of was like, wait, I don't want to go on stage again unless I get paid. Finally, there was this day where I was like, I don't really feel good going on stage unless I get paid. It's not just about the music. It's not just about like, let's go do this thing, you know? It's a really big commitment, you know, um, having a touring band and sort of being, in a sense, the responsible one, you know, because the people you employ have to be taken care of first you know so it was a a really intense logistically it was a really intense experience at the beginning and it's finally sort of been something I can figure out and deal with now at this point <laughs> yeah well I, I suppose after more or less after that first tour you moved to Vienna right was that precipitated by the the madness of that touring at all the the change of scenery the move to Vienna was precipitated by encountering some really talented producers that had a brilliant studio that was unbelievably exciting to be in. 
but it was also prompted because of a bit of a love affair. It was also prompted because I was experiencing problems with drugs that was that I had gotten clean and then had a huge relapse, which really I could not figure it out until I went to a quiet place. And so there were a handful of things that really eventually brought me to Vienna. But um, I think it's fair to say that uh, at that moment, I didn't really know it, but one of my best friends was there waiting for me in a way, if you think about Destiny, uh, who ended up co-producing my last album with me, he and his partner, who's also a very dear friend, called Konstantin Zeilison, who they have more roots in techno. They're more like, they have a, an act called Mikrotal, that's a more brutal Detroit electro thing, and a thing right now called Buffered Multiple, which is on Eftemann's label, which is um, really, really hypnotic, super cool techno. So being around these like guys that were amazing at what they do and having this studio that created insane sounds was definitely an incentive when it came to moving to Vienna. And there is a definite shift in that second album in terms of this, the sound of it. You know, clearly that must have been a lot to do with the studio. Well, okay, so the second album was done. See, I didn't move to Vienna until the third album. The oh, second album was done with Patrick Pulsinger. And I, I stayed in Vienna for a period, but I wouldn't consider it my home at that point. But no, the second album was done because I experienced Patrick Pulsinger's studio. I've sort of, I guess in a way, maybe I'm dragged around the world a little bit by uh, chance encounters with wonderful studios, but also really talented possible collaborators. After that period of cutting my teeth in New York and being able to sort of like travel for your job and play music and make music in different countries and stuff, I mean, I'm really grateful. It's such a, an amazing blessing to encounter all these new musicians and new producers and new talent. And some of them you click with and you sort of can create new uh, endeavors and new relationships with. So Patrick and I did that second album. But I also co-produced quite a handful of the songs in San Francisco with a guy called Mark Pistol, who is also a big part of the story because... It started in San Francisco, to be honest, the, that record. And um, Mark is a, a legendary, talented producer from um, an industrial band that I was a fan of as a teenager. So I got to collaborate with two artists as co-producers on that album, and their studios were just great. Yeah, And also during that period from the first album to the second album, you also changed labels. Um, yeah. I just wondered if you could shed some light on, on that at all, or, or was that just simply a logistical no, thing? No, no, I mean, I can totally talk about it. You know, EMI, it's boring, but EMI <laughs> Records was bought by, was it Universal Records or something? And basically, when they looked at what EMI was doing, they looked at all their sub-labels and their little, and they said, all right, DFA, your budget's getting cut. You have a choice. Do you want Hercules and Love Affair or do you want LCD Sound System? And LCD Sound System kind of is the band that the owner of the label does. So it was an obvious decision, you know? I guess it wasn't Sophie's choice in a way, but, you know, it's still, Kinda, still pretty, pretty bad, though. I have to say, for um, a label, because I, I do believe that there's a lot of integrity in those that crew, you know, like... 
I think that that was not a fun or easy thing for them to do. They are artists, and for John, for James, you know, I think it's not like a pretty thing, fun thing to have to be like, here's someone that we really believe in that we helped in such an immense way, and now we have to sort of tell them to go figure something else out, you know? So that's the reality of it. Maybe it isn't that boring of a story, but... Um, well, I guess that's just the rot of a, of the major label game, really. You know, it's just when even something that can be could quite easily be profitable, if it's not making enough short-term gains, then you're on the chopping board. You it's know? All, it all depends about uh, on who's viewing the situation, you know? When money guys are getting involved and you're, as you say, short-term games become a priority, you know, someone's artistic ability or significance or whatever isn't so much the issue yeah art versus commerce yeah exactly <laughs> one thing i did wanted to speak about is um your songwriting um one thing that i think it comes clear on all of your albums there's always a sense of emotion you know that can even be sadness or, or happiness uh, but also kind of a lot of a political statements as well which is kind of not really so usual in dance music mm. is that something that you consciously put a lot of thought into or is it something that just pretty much comes naturally to you yeah i think um it goes back a little bit to the uh the things i studied at school you know i was a pretty inclined when it came to like you know learning about social change and like you just growing up as like a gay man, I'm marginalized to a degree, you know, I'm still Caucasian, I'm still a man, you know, but um, I experienced difficulty, you know, as that being a part of it. And so like, it definitely informs my experience. I definitely know that there are um, people who need to be advocated for, you know, I, I do believe in the spirit of service of helping other people and stuff and spirit of community and stuff. So like, I think it came kind of naturally. It's not all me either, you know. It's like you have these conversations with the people that you engage with, that you're collaborating with, and um, sometimes, you know, creative content comes out of that kind of stuff. It's not overtly political, I'd hope to say. I think on the last record, maybe there was a bit more of an even o an overt political nature to some of the music. But um, because I've always felt that can be alienating mm. this stuff, you know. And, like, I try to remain in some ways as universal uh, in terms of lyrical content and message and stuff. So even if you, if I'm talking about something that's really like specific and personal, I try to make it poetic, like use some amount of poeticism to make it understandable or relatable. I think it's very true what you're saying about, you know, not making um, political statements overt because I only realized some of them on the last album by you know doing research for this interview you know such as you know let yourself be and stuff like yeah. that which you know it can be taken as one way but it can be taken in a number of you know let yourself be sexuality and you know feminism and whatnot or it could just be taken in another way and I find that quite interesting about a lot of your yeah. songs yeah it's not as easy of a um a listen or it's not so quickly digested you can't just sort of I'm not interested in making fodder for people, you know, I think people deserve more. I think listeners deserve more in terms of, you know, provocation when it comes and just substance, you know, I don't think I need to make another boring dance track for someone. And I don't think I also need to make another hands in the air, woo woo, you know, kind of just track, you know, those kinds of songs exist. 
I don't really have an interest in making them. Yeah, I read that you said some of your more recent dance-related tracks are a reaction to, did you say Bad Filter House was the uh, comment that was in the... <laughs> oh, I don't know if Bad Filter House. I think there's a handful of specific genres that the music I'm making at the moment is probably a reaction to, you know. I'm not excited by people who aren't risk-takers, you know. I'm not particularly excited by music that isn't challenging that doesn't feel like it was a challenge there was a challenge in the process for the person making it for the people that it's intended for i mean i don't know even though records you know creating music doesn't really you know isn't something a, a way you can feasibly live in terms of money and stuff i still find it extremely important and uh it might be my downfall you know <laughs> but um I kind of care about what's being, the, what the content is, you know? So, you know, of course, from your first album, you know, onwards, your, also your DJ career has uh, very much taken off, you know. Do you remember when you was getting a sense of, you know, that you was actually becoming a known DJ as well as someone who was known for making records? I mean, I think the DJing thing kind of came out of people, critics, audiences responding to my aesthetic explorations on the albums you know so like people would hear something that felt referential to another era or a genre or something in history and they would say this sounds like that or it makes me feel like that when i listen to it so they they probably started thinking i wonder what he music he's got up his sleeve in terms of djing and you know i got to do a couple of like significant compilations and you know express myself um in terms of a, as a, a selector in some way and have it reach hand, like a, a number of people but um it's not like i'm the kind of person that i find it those stories about djs that are djs and that's their thing and they get known through their djing i find those stories to be quite remarkable and quite impressive you know, um, I grew up listening to producers and quite often going to see that producer DJ and being really let down. And then, you know, hearing a wonderful DJ and then checking out one of his productions and being terribly let down. I think I definitely would say that my first craft is songwriting and that, you know, my take on DJing is, uh, I wouldn't say it's secondary, but it's creating the content is more important to me than delivering it to the masses, you know, delivering other people's content. But the first time that I realized like, oh, people are listening. And I think I played on Radio One in 2009 for Annie Mac in front of a shitload of people at Glastonbury. And I was like, wow, this is live on the radio. And I have a ton of people screaming in front of me. It doesn't even feel real. And I remember playing a Kink and Neville Watson track that um, then subsequently Kink and Neville Watson were talking about that I had played this record on Radio 1. And I thought, okay, so wait, this does reach people. You know, this does impact things in a way. It's an interesting thing. I love DJing. I like DJing, but it's not nearly as satisfying for me as being in a studio in front of a keyboard 
around some instruments and possibly with a co-writer. Yeah. So speaking of co-writers, you know, you, you work with a whole bunch of people in your career so far. Do you have a set process for collaborating with someone or does it kind of really depend upon the person? I've learned a lot through collaborating with different people. And one of the first things I've learned uh, the top of the list is pay attention to who the person is in front of you. So no, I don't have, I don't walk into a room anymore with a set um, agenda. Creating as low pressure of an environment is really key, number one. Like inhibition is just, you know, the thing to avoid when you get two people in a room and you want to be creative. I mean, if I do anything, I try to, I try to create a rapport, even if I only have a short time, a certain amount of I try to disarm, usually. I try to endear myself on some level. I try to convey that there is really nothing to be worried about. I'm not much of a person who's going to judge you or judge the ideas that come out of you. And I would like it if you didn't, if you kind of did things the same way. But I think that, that creating that sort of really sort of, if you will, soft foundation is the best way to see something grow out of it, if I was to make a metaphor out of it. So yeah, allowing for vulnerability to exist in the studio or in the room. And uh, that is something I have done definitely with the people with a lot of people on the last record, it was like, just saying, can we get personal? Can we dive deep? Can we do something substantial? Please, let's try to make something substantial today, you know? Absolutely. And you mentioned the last album going deep there. And, you know, I wanted to talk about John Grant's contribution to that album because, you know, that is a very you know deep topic that he, he, he did on, on his his work. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, that is really one of the um, that's a great example of, of just someone coming into the studio, not knowing me very well. And a conversation that began with how do you feel about talking about something really painful or something really deep inside of you, are you willing to address one of the most difficult things in your life? That was really the request. Like, let's make a song about one of the most difficult things in your life. And John, you know, I think for a lot of other people, who, who knows, but John was just willing to go there. John was immediately like, let's do it, you know. But that just, it speaks to his his own artistry. I mean, he's really one to bear a lot in his work and also um, his comprehension of, and his way of articulating and commenting, uh, evoking a range of emotion in his work is really remarkable. So, um, And to be clear for people who don't know that, he's talking about his personal illness there on that, on that song. Yeah. yeah, so basically he went and started writing some words and when he decided to share them with me, he informed me, it was about him being HIV positive and the moment that he found that out and what he felt he needed to tell himself or what he should have told himself many years ago. So, yeah, he talked about being positive and uh, the emotional yeah, impact that that had on his life. So, yeah, that was a, definitely a deep one, a deep collaboration, you know. Absolutely. And also on that album, you've got um, 543 to Freedom as yeah. well, which again, I thought that was a really interesting one. But can you tell us about the, the singer on that song and yeah. what that song actually meant as well? Because that's an interesting story. Well, Rouge, Rouge Marie is um, 
a Parisian singer, Rouge and Gustav are the two singers from the last album that are kind of in the, they are the live show with me at the moment. They're two amazingly capable singers from really different backgrounds, which is brilliant on stage. But um, Rouge, we had one extremely debaucherous night in Panorama Bar doing a, like a sound system show which is essentially me playing tracks, old and new, and the singers both having microphones and either destroying the music or making the music super cool. One thing that came out of that night was him singing this riff, Be Yourself Like There Ain't Nobody. Be Yourself Like There Ain't Nobody. I'm gonna be myself like there ain't nobody. Ain't nobody around, you know? Um, The idea of like, you know, be that person that you can be only with yourself at all times. So that was the um, the kind of riff he was singing. And I decided to take that as a starting point to create a song. It's kind of evokes that song, 543 Freedom on the album, evokes the sound factory in a way. It's really an homage of a sort to DJ Duke, who made a kind of a sort of hard house, transy hard house, but still at moments quite deep and soulful and I used a sample from a John Waters film which is basically two characters rattling off a bunch of derogatory statements slurs against all kinds of people you know racial slurs um, gender commentary all kinds of inappropriateness that sample had actually been used before on a record by Danny Tanaglia and Peter Dow so again, it's kind of a sound, sound factory, factory reference. Uh, yeah. So, but I used it for my for my song, and um, yeah, the whole thing came. It's a really fun song to play live because the message is simple and it's really effective, and it makes an invite. The room lights up when you tell people to just not be, to be fearless, you know, to stand up and be who you are, as if there isn't another person looking at you or judging you there's yeah so that was born actually that song was in a sense it was born out of a live show but these two Gustav and Rouge have become really like family to me I think it's the closest thing to a fixed sort of family like they just it's the easiest it's been you know like there's a certain immediacy and an understanding it wasn't always easy with them but um they're brilliant to perform with and brilliant to collaborate with. And Rouge seems like a really fearless character. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, Rouge's story is such a special one, you know? Like, Rouge grew up in Paris uh, exploring gender, um, the, the, the world of the gender fuck, or like, you know, um, trans, exploring his trans self from an early age. And we really have a connection because we've, we've come from sort of hard places. But at one point, he found himself in a church and um, experienced the power of gospel music while dressed as a woman. And I don't know what happened. There must have been an epiphany there, but um, there was an epiphany. And he started getting involved in gospel music. And you know, is a very faithful person. He's a, um, he's just has strong Christian beliefs. And, um, you know, 
is really actively opening people's minds constantly because he exists as a, a contradiction, a walking contradiction, you know? He's not interested in your label. He's not interested, but he's interested in, um, you know, definitely interested in love and equality and seeing, and yeah, like non-judgment. So he was singing gospel choirs and um, at one point, his story, I mean, it, it's really his story, but I, I I guess I can tell it. It was his opportunity, first opportunity to my memory, to sing a solo in the gospel choir that he was performing with. And the, the director said, you could take your solo today, but you showed up to the church today wearing heels and your hair in pony, a ponytail. That's not cool. Take it off or no, or you're not doing a solo. And Ruth said, it's, who are you to judge me? And sort of pushed his way into performing a solo that day. So he's singing, and the whole his whole message starts with "I'm in love with a man," in the middle of a church, in heels and pigtails, at which the audience or the the congregation freaked out. Into about a minute into it, they realized the man he was singing about was Jesus, and they all stood to their feet and went, you know, ballistic like crazy, you know, like they got his message. So, um, yeah, I mean. Talk about amazing collaborators. We're just definitely one of the most unusual and special. Yeah, that's absolutely inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, obviously, very much with your live show and always, I guess, with everything you do, really, as, as, as a musician, um, LGBT issues are very much front and center. Do you think that's perhaps something that's slightly lacking from dance music in general, considering where it's come from and, you know, the history of the whole thing is, is is come from lgbt roots really there are definitely people representing you know there's like a really healthy queer um, dance music community they got more cred now than they've had in a long time you know people have realized that you know women are amazing djs as well and that queer boys can turn out a set as well and you know, I think it's it's a better and, and healthier and there's more representation than ever. I mean, yeah, in general, it might be an issue that alienates some listeners. And that is just, I, I mean, par, of, par for the course, I guess, on some level. But um, it's not something I'm particularly surprised by, I guess. I don't want to sound apathetic, but like I hear from people like, I'm sh- too many vocals. You you play too many. Your music has too many vocals. You have too many lyrics. It's too like emotional. There's too much music in it. It's too musical. You know all of this this stuff, which is kind of you know nonsense to me. But I think that um, that tides are changing a bit. You know, and you have also th- these amazing proponents of like great music period that do play highly musical slightly like queerish stuff you know when you go hear you know harvey play music there are some moments where it's like you are feeling flamboyant and if you're not feeling flamboyant at that moment you're not listening to the music you know but as i said you know we have more and more great queer collectives and like you have the honey sound system crew doing their thing you have horse doing their thing you have um, all kinds of prosumer, like representing in a major way the badass DJ that can be 
gay. Yeah, you know, you don't have to look far. I guess would be the the counter argument to the underrepresentation. No. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. But that said, I it, there's this thing where it's like, just because it's there doesn't mean there's enough. Yes. You know, and yeah. So you've moved again. Are you in a new studio there making new music? Yeah. So I've been the past year has been creating a new workspace for myself. It's intense. I haven't been back living in the United States for four years essentially and i mean i have a record collection there i have still have some gear music gear there but um the past year has been partially devoted to uh, creating a new a new studio uh, of which i got some pretty new exciting new toys just a week ago uh, which has been really hard to pull me away from and then has there Anything come out of those early sessions yet? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, definitely. I've I've had I've had a handful of remixes that I've done. I mean, every remix that I did in the past year was done there, and I have a new little side project that I've done with a Seattle DJ called uh, Narc that will be released on Mister International in the next couple months. But it's something of a, you know, we went into it initially saying let's do something kind of more techno and then i was like no let's do something more disco and they were like let's just do something in between techno and disco which is a totally crazy like that means nothing you know but i really that approach towards music is the really the only approach i feel like taking right now and making a record that can as easily fit into a techno set by a skilled dj or into a disco set by a skilled DJ was kind of the approach. So it's something of a disco edit, but it feels like a really loopy techno track. And the B-side is just a, a thing along the same lines, something that I wanted to do, which was edit meets techno. Was that because you was finding, you know, maybe some edits a bit lackluster or techno records lacking a bit of fun, perhaps? I don't know. Well, I mean, there, I think there's a million techno records that lack more than fun. And I think there's a lot of edits that are more than lackluster. But I also think there's great things in both genres, too, you know? So it was more, it, honestly, it really came out of, I want bridge records for me, personally. I want bridge records because I want to be able to fluidly move from one world to another. Things that exist in between are some of my favorite things. You know, like, I was thinking about this the other day, stuff that exists in between eras, for instance. Like, when New Wave transitioned into, in the mid-80s, before house music really happened, at the end of New Wave, that music that was coming out that kind of, like, proto house stuff is super interesting and exciting the same way that you know the stuff that exists between house music and between techno stuff that exists between genres and between eras i find to be the most exciting i guess 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's often the case when something's unclassifiable or yes. doesn't have a genre tag or, or the norms have not been yet set down on paper. It's where the most interesting music lies, you know. I agree. Like yeah, like serious in that dub of serious intention, the kind of I guess archetypal proto house track. Yeah, still sounds amazing today, and and I think it's because they didn't weren't trying to aim for any specific sound. Yeah, I think people like Ron Hardy really ex, you know articulated this idea this concept that like it can be disco but it can send you into something hypnotic and body oriented send you an edit especially an edit can send you into outer space the way that a techno record would and lo and behold he's playing kind of proto techno you know that was kind of the inspiration on that record but i just finished five songs that are um, I'm really excited about because my exploration of faster BP like techno music pre 1994, they're kind of like I don't know drawing on the works of people like Mark Bell from LFO and the Detroit guys. So I made a handful of tracks that have a and and also Belgian. The Belgian sound, you know, it's like it makes sense as I'm living there, but it's this really early techno stuff, and yeah, I'm really excited about these these things. No vocals, loop oriented, but highly involved in well, not highly, but quite involved in terms of melodic content, but not necessarily harmonious melodic content. So it certainly sounds like you're focusing on the more club-orientated side of your productions. Does that mean a new Hercules Love Affair vocal thing is maybe not forthcoming, or is that something you're going to attempt later sometime soon? Well, so I've been exploring. It's funny. I've been writing. I've been writing a bit of classical music for a friend for a performance. So stuff that's quite minimalist and soft, and then that's intended for live instruments. And then I've also been doing these like techno tracks at 135 BPM and stuff. And what's ended up happening is that I've sort of officially established a clear direction for what the next Hercules record is going to be. And it sounds like, wow, you just described two things that couldn't be further from each other on some level sonically. But um, the time that I spent in the past eight months working on both of these projects, stuff bouncing around in my head, has really set the tone. So I have already started writing for the new record, the new Hercules record. And um, that is super exciting because I'm hearing and imagining Hercules in a way that I never did before. So almost exploring more sonic extremes than I did, definitely than the last record. And yeah, just tapping into a wider range of emotions and a more extreme range of emotion. Uh, it's going to be really cool, I think. 